John Wertheim here, Sports Illustrated Tennis Podcast for the first week of July. Hi, everyone. I'm at the All England Club. You might get some authentic Wimbledon background noise during this podcast. I apologize, but chalk it up to authenticity. Thought we'd do things a little differently with myself over here. We're going to have Jamie Lasanti, ace tennis producer for SI.com. How are you, Jamie? Good. How are you? Oh, just fine, thanks. What you got for me? We're going to start out first with the number ones, of course, the topics of the tournament, uh, Djokovic and Serena. So now that we're heading into the third round, do you have any reason to think any differently about these two? I have no reason to think differently about either. The women's draw has been in a bit of disarray for uh, still another slam. Jeannie Bouchard crashed out, Simona Hobb, the third seed out, Makarova's lost, Ivanovic has lost, but Serena is rolling. She's now up to 23 straight Grand Slam wins as we record this. She gets a Brit, Heather Watson next. And really, it would be a story of the tournament if Serena were to lose. I mean, it, it sounds crazy to say that a player winning her fourth straight major is expected, but that's essentially where we are. And Serena has avoided a lot of the drama here. I mean, I think everybody's looking forward to that potential match against Venus in the fourth round which would, would be on Monday. But as it stands now, Serena looks very strong, and so does Djokovic. There's sort of the non-story story was his relationship with Becker. Boris Becker has a book out, and he's been aggressive promoting it. There have been some juicy bits, Djokovic and Roger Federer not liking each other, and this admission that Becker, quote, communicates with Djokovic during matches. It's been a bit of a distraction. You can tell Djokovic is annoyed when he gets asked about it, but it hasn't had any material impact on his play. He has played six sets and has looked sharp as a defending champ. Doesn't look like there's much carryover effect from that loss at the French Open. I picked him before the tournament. I appreciate the opportunity to change midstream, but I'll stick with him again as the favorite. Um, Djokovic looks very strong. Bernard Tomic is his next opponent. We're, you know, I'll be candidly, we are speaking late on Thursday, my time. So some of these results may be old by the time you listen, but uh, Djokovic, Tomic next, and it does not look like uh, he'll have any problem getting into the second week, Jamie. You talk in your column about Djokovic and Becker and mid-match communication. You want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, it, you know, we always have this at big tournaments, and it seems like at Wimbledon especially, where you have this tabloid presence, there are always these off-court stories, these non-story stories, and they tend to be a bigger deal to the outside world. I and mean, I don't think anyone on the ground knew or particularly cared about Jeannie Bouchard and the black bra or the Brody family where the son doesn't talk to the father. Uh, these become conflated into major scandals at Wimbledon. And one of these type stories is Djokovic and the, the alleged coaching by Boris Becker. I mean, I think some of this is the fact that Boris Becker now lives in Wimbledon. He's, he's sort of a, a full-time resident here former champion, so I think there's some, some star power there. But I also think that this is a non-scandal scandal. I mean, we don't know what communicate means in terms of coaching. Um, you know, if, if Boris Becker's in the stands and he's pumping his fist or shaking his head, that's communicating. That does not uh, qualify as illegal coaching. If Boris Becker is, is giving hand signals, as we've seen with some players, that's, that's a bigger issue. But Djokovic, I, I think, is a fairly independent player. He doesn't strike me as one of these guys who necessarily needs or would ask for 
any sort of illicit coaching. I mean, this is an issue that, that both tours at some level need to come to grips with. And one of one of my issues, and I think one of tennis's real virtues, is the fact that there is this independence and players have to carve out these plan Bs and these exit strategies for themselves. Um, I mean, I think it's something that makes tennis special. So I think the WTA's coaching during tour events, not at majors, but during tour events, I think that's, that's really unfortunate. What I wonder, though, if this is a big deal and if players sometimes complain and, and you know, every, every casual fan sort of has a sense of which players rely on this illicit coaching, there ought to be penalties after the match. I mean, you ought to be able to have um, sort of post hoc penalties. And if you go and review tape and see coaching, go ahead and levy a fine, levy a penalty then. Uh, the way it stands now, it's incumbent on the chair umpire to catch the coaching mid-match, which A, is difficult, and B, the chair umpire has so many other duties. Um, again, I mean, I think this is, is a scandal that's been blown out of proportion. I'm not sure it's really a scandal, but it is something that's been a distraction for Djokovic, and what, what strikes me is, is um, anyway, th- at this point in his career, all these top players are really trying to cut down on distractions. I mean, they don't want personality conflicts. They don't want their personal lives dissected. They really don't want anything that would rock the boat. So the fact that the player's own coach at some level is the source of this uh, is, is an interesting twist. And I wonder if uh, when Wimbledon is over, Novak Djokovic and Boris Becker don't have a heart-to-heart and Novak says, listen, I know you're trying to sell a book here, but you can't you can't sell me out like that. But as it stands now, again, Djokovic has looked very crisp and clean, now has won nine straight matches at the All-England Club, and there have been no coaching warnings or violations from Novak Djokovic through the first six sets. And speaking of distractions, uh, someone that may have a lot of them on her plate and in her world lately is Jeannie Bouchard, who once again crashed out in the first round. So do you have any any thoughts on, on Jeannie and what's the next step for her? Yeah, I mean, as I record this, on Thursday, Bouchard's exit has really been the talk of the tournament. She reached the finals here last year. This was after having reached the semis of the two previous majors. She really looked like a star on the make. She was well inside the top ten, obviously sort of a, a marketer's dream. And since that Wimbledon final last year, remember she lost to Petra Kvitova badly, and since that match almost a year ago to the day, she has been a completely different player. And she didn't just lose her first-round match here. I mean, she lost to a player who had to qualify, ranked outside the top 100. I mean, again, this is a player who reached the finals a year ago, this year losing to a player with a triple-digit ranking. And a sophomore slump is not rare in tennis, certainly not in the women's game. You have to play more matches. There are more pressures. Other players are, are hip to your game. Other players get hip to beat you. You might feel extra pressure to play, even if you're not 100% physically. Sloane Stevens is a recent example of a player who had a great sort of rookie freshman season and then took a, a step back. Sloane Stevens is now back to playing quality tennis. But in the case of Bouchard, this is like nothing I've ever seen. I mean, she is struggling just to win single matches. Again, a, a top five player less than a year ago. She's now outside the top 20. She's made a ton of changes which is uh, sort of a cautionary tale for other players in her position. She's changed coaches. She's changed agents. She's gotten rid of a fitness trainer. I mean, there's a lot of disruption there. And right now she just seems really confused and lost. And she had mentioned some physical issues, an abdominal injury, but you suspect it goes way, way beyond that. And 
you know, it's it's a tough position. She's got a lot of commercial pressures. The next event is the Canadian Open. Being from Canada, she's a top draw there. She has endorsement contracts that are based largely on her playing and playing well and playing well in big events. She's now lost two first-round matches at the last two majors. Again, I've never seen a fall quite like this. I mean, this is just a- absolutely down the, the mine shaft. Now outside the top 20, and you wonder if she might just think about shutting it down here for a while. I mean, clearly her body needs to recover. Clearly her spirit needs to recover. She may need to make a coaching change. This, this relationship is clearly not working with Sam Sumick, her new coach. And it's really something that's gone from, wow, she's she's struggling to almost existential. I mean, there are a lot of people sort of whispering, are we ever going to see her back at the, the top of the game? How do you recover from, from a year like this? So it's uh, it's it's not pretty to watch. You hope almost for her, you know, you, you, you like her, you don't like her, that's fine. You, you almost everybody's sort of hoping that she breaks this slump because this has gotten very ugly very fast. And if she is to take that break, how long and when do you suspect or would you suggest that start? Yeah, you know, she's she still as as we as we speak, she's still in the double straw here, which is a bit strange. You know, again, you you take a brutal loss like that in singles and the you just want to get on the next flight home. I mean you, you barely want to stop and shower and do your press conference. You just want to get the heck out of town and she's still here and will now play doubles match on a on a back court, which is a bit strange. Um, you know, you, you also you, the pressures commercially, I think, are really something that can't be ignored. That there are a lot of contracts and a lot of uh, you know, Coke is one of her sponsors. I mean, there are a lot of blue chip companies that are expecting her to play and play well. So it's not quite as easy as it might be for other players who we could say, listen, I gotta shut the engine down for ninety days. I, I need to kind of re- regroup and recoup and get my emotions back. And there are a lot of pressures on her to keep going. Again, the next event on her calendar is going to be the Canadian Open. I would be very surprised if she played that, but I do think she'll play the U.S. Open. I mean, a player of her caliber and of her sort of commercial value can't just skip a Grand Slam tournament. So I suspect we'll see her back at the U.S. Open, but if she takes a break between now and then, she's still giving herself, you know, whatever it is, 45 days to get in the right headspace. But but right now, this is just ugly stuff. I mean, uh, again, if, if she doesn't get back to the finals, that's one thing. But losing her first round match to, to a Chinese qualifier, ranked number 117, is not behavior becoming a top five player. About 10 days left in the tournament. What are you looking forward to? What should we be looking out for? You know, I think the themes of the tournament that we would have highlighted and Put in, put in bold faith and italics before the tournament still hold. Who can beat Serena? Is somebody ready to step up? We've seen a lot of players already on the women's side who just didn't have it mentally. We've talked a lot about Bouchard, but what about Simona Halep, who reached a Grand Slam final last year, was number three in the world. She did not get out of the first round against an opponent ranked outside the top 100. Same for Anna Ivanovic. You know, these players, Serena's only won uh, two matches, but already a lot of her challengers have dropped off. I think a lot of people are looking forward to seeing this match against Venus, which always is freighted with, with an extra layer of drama, given their relationship. I think that Azarenka is a player people are looking at as someone who might not beat Serena, but at least isn't going to retreat. But right now, again, you, you would probably say this is Serena's tournament to win. If she does win, she will, of course, have four straight majors and will go to the U.S. Open in search of the Grand Slam within within a single year, 
which would be almost like American Pharaoh heading into the Belmont. That will be obviously a, a big story there. And on the men's side, Djokovic is your favorite. He's your defending champion. He's your top seed. I think there's a sense on the men's side that the draws not open-open, but there are a number of players that have a chance at him. Milos Raonic plays Nick Kyrgios in a much-anticipated match tomorrow, and the winner of that, you would think, has, has a realistic chance of going very far in this tournament. Raonic, obviously, a semifinalist last year. Roger Federer won today. Very little uh, drama against Sam Querrey uh, between the leg shot. Obviously, if Roger Federer is going to win another Grand Slam tournament, it's most likely going to come on grass here at Wimbledon, which he's already won this event seven times. Rafael Nadal is looking to get back in the groove. Andy Murray has played very well. I think there's a sense on, on the men's side that Djokovic is your favorite, but really there's a handful of players that, that have a real shot at the title here. So, no, it's, it's, it's great. I mean, it's always uh, – there's never a shortage of storylines in tennis, and you have these these magnetic players at the top, and then the other sort of the, the subset of stories are which is, who's going to be the Nick Kyrgios of, of of 2015? Who's going to be that player that breaks through that we might not know much about? Coco Vandeweghe. I mean, you, you sort of look at the draw, and there are all sorts of sub stories, which is part of what gives these events so much texture. We all remember the winners; they become trivia question answers. They pad their Hall of Fame credentials. But a lot of times what really makes these tournaments so special are these sub-stories. Players that aren't going to win, but the, you know, the Agnieszka Radwanska getting to the final, the, the players that break out, they have a, a career tournament, a career payday, those are always fun to watch as well. So upsets on the women's side, very few upsets on the men's side, and yet it's still been a very nice tournament after four days, Jamie. Lastly, as we head into Fourth of July weekend here, in the U.S. What are your thoughts on, we have two American women who have taken down two seeds. What are your thoughts on, on those two women? The, the American, as we headed to Fourth of July weekend, the American seed on, on the men's side is, is fairly grim. John John Isner still in the tournament is, is your best bet. Otherwise, uh, you know, Canada is, is kind of America, so maybe you like Milos Raonic. Um, but basically... You know, we're unlikely to have a, an American champion on the men's side. The women's side is intriguing. Uh, Serena is obviously the favorite, but a number of other players have come to the fore, too. Coco Vandeweghe, hard-serving Californian, looked terrific in her match. She beat 11 seeded Carolina Pliskova. In the second round now plays Sam Stoser, a player she's already beaten this year. Vandeweghe has a huge serve, probably the best serve outside of Serena. She's only 23 years old. She has a new coach in Craig Carden, who worked with Martina Navratilova for many years. Coco Vandeweghe, star her in your program. She's an exciting player. And, you know, Sloane Stevens is back. She's found her groove again. Her next match is against Lucy Saparova, the left-hander who reached the French Open Finals, now the sixth seed here. And, Jamie, you mentioned Bethany Maddox-Hands, which is a great story. I mean, she's 30 years old. She had severe surgery in the offseason, won the doubles with Saparova at the Australian Open, won the doubles again at the French Open, and now she comes here, qualifies for singles, and takes out Ana Ivanovic in her previous match. Great attacking player, athletic, loves the grass. So on the women's side, anyway, a lot to like on the American front. Madison Keys still in the draw. Um, a lot of reasons for optimism on the women's side, much less so on the men's. But, you know, as, as, honestly, as tennis has gotten so global, I think a lot of these country divisions and rooting interests have, have diminished a little bit. I mean, I think people love Roger Federer. They love Rafael Nadal. 
they don't care that they're not from California, Texas, or Florida. So um, I, I think flags are losing a lot of their importance in tennis. But by the same token, you know, the USTA tends to get bashed a fair amount for, for talent development. Look on the women's side of the draw, and America's represented just fine. Happy 4th, everyone, by the way. John Wertheim here. Thanks, everyone. We'll do it again next week.